0: Welcome to. Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a cracked rackets and tennis channel podcast network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. We have a doozy of an episode for all of you listeners today, as I am joined by a former NCAA champion, former Grand Slam finalist, and now USTA Director of Pro Tennis Operations and Player Relations. Of course, I'm referring to the great Eric Budereck, who joins us on today's show to discuss a plethora of topics relating to the pro tennis world. Of course, I had to ask about his experience serving as Tournament Director at this year's. Western and Southern Open Masters 1000 event. It was fascinating to hear his reflections on going from the player side of the equation to tournament operations. I also had to unpack some of his former player council experiences. Eric served as vice president and president of the player council. And I have to say, if you're going to stick around on this podcast for any individual bit, make sure you stay around to hear Eric's story about his first vote while serving on the player council. Might be my favorite story we've ever had shared. Here on this podcast, and I don't say that lightly. It, it's just absolutely delightful, and this entire conversation, again, a doozy of an episode. I am certain you listeners are going to enjoy today's show, so with that in mind, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with the fantastic Eric Buderak. Joining us on the podcast today is a guest we are very much looking forward to having on this show as he was the 2003 NCAA Division III singles and doubles champion. Of course, he was also a 2014 Australian Open men's doubles finalist, director of professional tennis and operations and player relations at the USTA, and of course, now tournament director of the Western and Southern Open. Welcome onto the show, Eric Buderek. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Alex. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it is my pleasure. A, you have built up quite the resume. So an introduction worthy of a guest, let me say. B, and this is a little thing, and right off the back, it's stupid. But my older brother is named Eric. And so whenever I say Eric, I just feel the connotation of anger when I'm like, all right, listen, Eric, because, uh, you know, if I'm happy with him, I'll call him E or, you know, I'll call him Enrique. But if the Eric comes out with vitriol, it's because it's a reflex. And it's not because I'm angry at you. Let's just establish that, I guess, at the beginning. If you want, you can use booty. That's been a
1: common nickname <laughs> when I was a player.
0: Um,
1: now that I'm, you know, more often in a suit and in an executive type role, I think I've shed that a little bit, but it's definitely <laughs> still lingering and there's times when even our CEO has to clarify, you know, on email. So, so booty is Eric, right? So yeah. Then. Well,
0: here's the problem: is I also call my older brother Eric Booty. Uh, obviously, a different connotation when I'm saying it to him. But I will do my best. Booty works for me, and obviously, it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. And I want to get into a bunch of different things uh, while we have you here. But first and foremost, obviously, tournament director for the Western and Southern Open. Now, you were very kind in having our Crack Rackets team there for a couple of days. Obviously, we got to work at the new college event and be on the grounds. But let's just start there for you to go. And obviously, you've been player relations, pro tennis operations at the UST for a while. But now you're the head honcho at a 1000 level event. What was that week like? What was that experience like for you?
1: yeah it was, it was it was amazing and um unfortunately it, it it may only be a one-year gig right as a lot of people know ben navarro has, has bought the tournament and it's it's a little unclear kind of uh what you know what the tournament will look like next year and, and if i'll be involved in working as a, as a usta employee but kind of backtracking into to last year um Yeah, it was an opportunity that came up i was able to work on the event in 21 uh, and got to know it a little bit i'd played it six times previously so i knew it from the playing side Uh, i'm a midwestern guy from minnesota so so being in cincinnati felt really comfortable um and yeah to get to be a a td of a, a masters level tournament was was really special um and uh yeah be able to kind of Help put my own spin on the tournament, like I said, and, and introduce the, the the college event, which was which was super fun until the the torrential downpour that hit, but as <laughs> that's, that's can happen in Cincinnati. Um B it was it was an awesome experience. Um, you know, even I Caroline Garcia said it really well in her in her winner speech, which is, you know, we go around the world and we sign a lot of autographs. A lot of times people have no idea who we are. You guys all know us. And that's, I mean, it's sort of a simple comment, but it's like, it's so true that this is a tournament of tennis fans. People drive from all over the Midwest, they come from around the country, but they are real tennis fans. And I felt that as a doubles player back when I played it. Uh, I think that that's really, really special. Um, So it's fun, fun to be a part of that and um yeah it was it was neat to to be to be in the tdc right i've been a lot of years kind of one cog in the wheel at the us open and you know often you know able to sit at the big table and offer my input and there was a few times during the the western southern open where you know we're around a table and then all of a sudden all the eyes look at me and and sort of like what's the decision and i'm like oh crap wow that's that's (laughs) all i'm in now um but you know luckily there's there's such great great team around there the ceo katie haas i mean she really keeps the train on the track. She's she's a, a really great leader. Uh, you get so much support from the tours. And and then, uh, you know, working with the players is something I've done for years. So I, I don't find that quite all that challenging, but just more, uh, more fun to see all the friendly faces.
0: No, I, I can only imagine what that's like. And a couple of follow-ups off of that. A, I have a theory, and again, it's a little bit silly, but I have a theory that every college tennis player should serve as a line judge in the summer. When the theory being, if they do that, they will never complain during a regular season again because you serve as a line judge once and you're like, oh, I get it now. It really isn't possible. I'm not sure if that far sideline was in or out. I can't tell from this angle. Like, if as a player, I'm not going to complain anymore.
1: So I'll, I'll follow that up. I, yeah. I, was once, I was living in France and I was practicing at this club. This is when I first started on the tour playing some Futures. And the, the guy at, running the club said, hey, Eric, I need a chair umpire for this league match. I wasn't able to play because I was like an international. I wasn't on the roster, but I needed a chair umpire one singles. And I was like one of those things where it's like you want to say no, but it's like the guy's been letting me train at his club for free and, you know, <laughs> staying with a host family and all this. I'm like, sure. I get up there. I'm making multiple mistakes in the first couple of games <laughs> I'm not really sure the etiquette of what I'm supposed to call balls. The two players agreed that I should just stop calling lines and they would call them themselves. And I was just like, oh, my God, I, I've never given an umpire a hard time again after that experience. Oh, would, that's,
0: that's amazing. And yeah, by the way, you're up there. Yeah. European you are can't see
1: anything on the far sideline. The players start giving you a hard time. You start getting frazzled. It's terrible,
0: especially if the players are good, because then it's like, dude, you hit 120 mile per hour serve far side like. No one could see it. Like We don't know. Um, I also think with automated line calling coming in, let's let the players call their own lines. Let's find out who the cheaters are because everything's going to be challengeable. So let's just have some fun as fans. But all of that was a setup to say, what's the complaint you feel the most that you're just like, if you could work in the tournament director shoes player for just like one day, you would understand why you shouldn't ask me this question all the time.
1: That's a good one. I don't, I don't have a real, a real common one. I've got a, I got a good relationship with the players. I feel like, um, I think one thing as an ex player sitting in that office, you know, like since you have a glass office right in the player lounge, I think they know that I know what it's like to be in their shoes. So they're only really going to bring me something that's like a real problem. Right. And there are a few, and some of them are unforeseen. Some are things we can fix. I don't get a lot of the sort of the BS problems that I think maybe other people might have to deal with. Um, You know, you, you learn a lot sitting on the other side. The thing I always just tell players, if I ever, if they ever ask me, you know, what can I do or, you know, what's, what's most helpful. I just say, you guys are so valuable. You don't understand. Like you have the ability to walk on court and entertain thousands or sometimes millions, depending on the broadcast, you can sign more autographs. You know, I, I try to post photos occasionally of like, Daniil Medvedev walking around the entire court, you know, one evening at 10 o'clock signing every single autograph. Alcaraz walking out at, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., you know, taking photos with these fans. I was like, you're changing lives. Like you're making tennis like you have so much power. And it's not even only the top players. It's the doubles players. It's the lower ranked singles guys, the qualifiers like interact with those fans as much as you can because you have a lot of power.
0: Well, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about player value because, again, another thing I wanted to ask you, and not to disparage any other tournament. Indian Wells, they say, is you know the fifth major, and it's paradise for players, but it's certainly expensive. Miami, as cities go, isn't exactly cheap. And then you have Cincinnati. You know, the U.S. Open is New York, and it's its own experience and its own value, regardless of what the ticket price is. But in my opinion— and I'm biased because it's the, really the main event I have been to. But I think Cincinnati is the best bang for your buck. You get all of the best players in the world because it is a 1000 level event. And you talk about, you know, not fielding petty complaints. It helps that there's a plethora of court space on the grounds, right? Everyone's always practicing. And there are times when the practice courts are more crowded than some of the match courts. Do you agree with that assessment? Or is that a take too far? That bang for your buck, Cincinnati is the event to attend in the States.
1: Bang for your buck, yeah. If you really, if you really love tennis and you want to see matches up close, I mean, you're going to see first round Holger Rune versus Cam Norrie, and you can go sit in the front row and and quickly move over and watch, you know, Schwartzman versus Berrettini. I mean, yeah, these are the kinds of matches. Then you're going to stroll over here and you're going to watch Pagula versus Petkovic, and it's like you can see it all really, really close. So if you're a tennis fan, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, From the player side. Um, you know, they're so focused on New York at that point. It's there's a lot of stress coming in New York. If you can keep them relaxed, you can keep them happy, you can keep them practicing, you got the training facilities they need. Um, you know, since he since he lines up really well for its place on the calendar. Um, and you know talking to a lot of these players, Um, French players, Italian players. They love being out in like suburban Ohio, right? (laughs) They just, this is not, I mean, you think about what players' lives are like, right? And they go from Monte Carlo to Barcelona, to Rome, to Madrid, to Paris, to London. They're not often in places like Mason, Ohio. And they really genuinely enjoy it. They all go to Cheesecake Factory, they go to Starbucks, they have their own rental cars. Um, they they do find the experience really enjoyable. So, you know, take care of those core needs that they really have. uh, And they're very happy uh, in the Cincinnati area.
0: No, you beat me to it. There's no better place if you want to run into pros Sunday night cheesecake factory. Before the main draw really gets underway, you're going to see at least 10. Like it's oh, the over under is ten and a half. And yep. so Whole uh, Foods, you can just you, hang out at Whole Foods. They're all shopping in there. Go to Starbucks. Yeah, again, gonna... early weekend graders before they're playing, they're going to get some ice cream and it's really good ice cream. And so, yeah, it's, I really thoroughly enjoy the Cincinnati event. Obviously, I thought you did an outstanding job. I do hope they bring you back. My last two Cincinnati re- related questions. Can we rebrand? I don't know what court number it is, like seven. When I say the name, you'll understand. Can we just call it the Iron Dome? that court because it is the Iron Dome. And I think if you called it that, it would just add an aura to when you're viewing and it's really you hot got in it. You a three with the tall st- metal sides. Yeah, with the tall yeah, metal yeah, sides. Tall metal big, sides. Big. Can we
1: call that the Iron Dome? Yeah, that's fair. And that, that one, that court needs a new identity. Uh, can yeah. use a little, yeah, refresh, a little branding. I agree. That's what
0: I'm that. saying. If they're going to go Nur Sultan to Astana, we can call it the Iron Dome. I also think the undercourt, I don't know what number that one is, but you know, the court where the college event was, Yes, I think that's quietly. And I was talking to Ben Shelton, who alluded to this as well. And obviously he had a great experience on there beating Kasparud. Yeah, I think that's quietly the best court in tennis that sunk under court. I'm curious your thoughts.
1: So, the, yeah, that one's tricky. It It is the best court in tennis. I've said that before. Um, the problem is it's not officially within the the, the playing parameters for the ATP or WTA. Uh, it's, 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 a it's, it's, it's a little small. It's a little small, which, again, caused a lot of problems for Casper Root and, 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 again, <laughs> something that, you know, I think that we need to actually get in there and blow out some of the concrete to widen it. I think if there's a possibility to do that, I'm no um, expert on on how difficult that would actually be to do, but you almost need to drill out like the whole first row uh, to make the ATP has given waivers in the past for us to use it. But I do think that, I mean, watching Caspar Root out there, you can't, you know, Alcaraz. I mean, where Dominic Team plays and Medvedev, I mean, these guys, they, they really can't play on a court like that. So we, we, we need to, you know, the, the tournament needs to figure that one out because it is a special
0: court. Um, and... uh The fans are on top of you. It's just there's very close. There's nothing like it. And especially for Ben, who's young, American, very, very energetic and charismatic. It just brought out the best of what a tennis crowd can do for a player. And it's just I love the way you, you know, again, I know how you go about thinking of the event. And that's why I wanted to ask about it, because I think now Ben is on a list. You know, I think that's a court where regardless of who's playing that court, can just always be fun. You don't have to worry about who's on court competing. And I think sometimes that's a problem. And this gets into a big picture thing. Obviously, we wanted to discuss here today. And this is something we talked about at Cincinnati. But I am curious, who are the biggest draws nowadays when it comes to players? Who are the people as a tournament director you know Are going to put butts in seats regardless of what you know court or seat they're on because as we look at tennis moving into the next decade we just saw the unofficial retirement ceremony for serena williams now will she play again up in the air but we saw what happened in new york obviously federer has announced that labor cup was his final event you can see a finish line for rafael nadal now i'm not going to say anything about Djokovic. i think he's going to go tom brady on us he'll be out there until yeah 46 47 until you have to drag him off but you know three of the names that have carried the past decade and a half plus of professional tennis the finish line is either in sight or past now And I'm curious if you see a new group emerging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We do. Uh, I think one of the really cool things that happened at the U.S. Open this year was that 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 tournament sort of became almost like the official changing of the guard tournament. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, you know, with the Serena's run stole all the headlines for the first week, right? It just drew so much attention. It was great for the sport, but there was almost like there was no room for anyone else to even be covered, right? Because it was just Serena, Serena, Serena. But what it did by having her draw those eyeballs and then lose in the third round was people were now watching the US Open and they were engaged, right? So then they quickly turned over to, wait a minute, okay, Coco Goff, is she sort of going to take over this? Is this going to be her time? Yeah, are we going to see Nick Kyrgios win a Grand Slam? Then Francis Tiafoe has his moment and then ultimately we finish with Iga and Carlos, right? And and pretty cool that you know Carlos, who we all think can win double digits of Grand Slams, gets his gets his first one. So, you know, I went back to the the Greater New York area, and and friends of mine who casually follow tennis are now want to talk about Tiafo and Alcaraz and Coco. When before that it was all Roger, Rafa, Serena, and so I was like, okay, you know, we we've sort of done it, right? We've taken all the fans and we've given them kind of the 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 next sort of platter of like, here's who you're gonna see, right? So I think, um, you know, the tournament was really special. And again, from for, for my money, like who am I gonna go watch? I mean, Nick is always entertaining, but what Francis did on Arthur Ashe, I thought was really special. And I got to sit courtside for some of those matches. I mean, there was times I walked out of there where I just had a headache after being out there for four hours, it was so loud and he's just like a conductor right he's he's getting the fans up he's taking them down he's giving them this one he wants he you know he's he's got he knows exactly how to sort of orchestrate that arena and um i mean i've been lucky enough to sit you know courtside for six years now working on that tournament and seeing how people can sort of go in there and you never quite know what's going to happen on Arthur Ashe and and how francis is able to sort of wrap everybody around his finger and, and and put on like a borderline magic show some days it's 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 really really cool so so that was he's he's one guy for me that i i just i can't get enough of watching him
0: i do want to expand on that francis topic because my college roommate who He was my freshman year roommate and we are still friends. We remain friends as perhaps you can imagine. I don't think I was the best freshman year roommate. I was still kind of figuring, you know, to describe as he once said, he's like, yeah, you just kind of do your thing. And I think that's a fair assessment of me. Nevertheless, he called me as he's heading to the U.S. Open and or, you know, as he's coming back and he goes, hey, like I just I was just at the Tiafo Nadal match. And I'm like, "Okay, that's crazy. And he goes, Dude, I don't think I've ever seen he said, dude, this is me paraphrasing him. You know, dude, I don't think I've ever seen a tennis player look lo- as much like an athlete as yeah. Francis Diafo does on court. It's just like the back muscles are ridiculous. I've said it before. I'll say it again. You want to know why he's so powerful? Look at the butt. I mean, it's just he is an athlete. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, Ty Tucker once came on our show and. And it was the most fascinating little tidbit from him, but I actually think there he had a, a broader point is that he goes, you know, I think everyone on tour needs to wear a size smaller clothing because you don't realize how athletic, you know, the Tiafos are. Even in his instance, it was like a Mikhail Torpegard at the time, who's just, yeah. you know, 6'5 and 190 pounds, pure muscle. And I do think when it comes to players like Tiafo, I think Alcarez certainly falls into this as well. There's a tangible athleticism to them that does. I I don't know how to explain. It just feels more translatable to the common fan. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I would even add in on the women's side how Iga can move. 100%. How Coco can move. Um, Sabalenka
0: and, you know, with her power is another one. You're just like, Sabalenka that's special. with her
1: power, Sakari. I mean, you have, yeah. I mean, it's like the athleticism it, it's on both sides mm-hmm. and it's, it's truly incredible. And that's what I think. Uh, I think the women's game, especially the last few years, the movement and the ability to to move and hit it's otherworldly. I mean, I was on a Fort Worth watching the last, you know, courtside on some of those matches, Again, same same thing, just phenomenal athletes uh, and tennis a lot like NBA, right? If you can get close, you really, really appreciate it.
0: I do think the heir apparent to the open stance Novak sliding backhand is actually Ega's because the way Ega hits, like as good as Ega is, if you give her time on the forehand, you're dead. If you hit the ball to her backhand, you're just dead. And it it really is just incredible, the fluidity for someone. And you're just like, you know, a bit we do on our shows. I think the greatest of all time debate is stupid, but I think it's very fun to talk about who's still alive in the greatest of all time debate. So, for instance, Carlos Alcaraz, not eliminated from the GOAT debate yet. (laughs) Like, you can't say he's not going to be like, you can say that about Medvedev now. You can't about Alcaraz. You can't about Ega either, like seventh youngest to three slam singles titles and just again the fact that both of those players are active in the early stages of their career when dare I say we almost needed it most. And, you know, yeah. something we wanted to talk about today, there's a new book out by Simon Cambers, Simon Graff, the Roger Federer effect. You know, people may not know this about you because obviously I've been through the accolades, Division three NCAA singles and doubles champ. By the way, you played two singles for Gustavus Adolphus that year. You were not even the number one That's singles true. player. You just you gave Whipple the business. What was the deal there?
1: Yeah, he. What happened? That he beat me in the fall. So he started off number one, and then we started alternating. Uh, and we were supposed to play in the national championship. It's kind of a weird story. And he, um, there was another guy who was number one in the country. I knocked him out in the semis after he served for the match, and then I was supposed to play Whipple in the final. And he um, he defaulted to me. He, re- he, ah. refused, he refused to play the final. He thought we would be too tired. We would beat up each other and then we would lose the doubles final. So he, he defaulted. Uh, he's my, my best friend in the whole world. The guy's completely crazy, um, but he's a he's a wonderful guy. And yeah, he, he wanted to focus on the dubs and said if if he was the best player in the country, he didn't need to play someone on his own team.
0: That was his theory. Yeah. Kevin, the quitter Whipple. That's what he'll go by henceforth. Um, no, I mean, yeah. let me ask you if you could, if you could actually, what would you rather do play that singles final out or play? I believe it's Williams again in that 3 NCAA tournament.
1: So 3 we didn't have the team to win it. The, the, the regret I have was, was not being more prepared in O2. 3 we, you know, Kevin and I were strong, but we didn't have enough, enough points to, to, to beat, to win that title. Uh, in O two 2 though, we were number one going in and I messed around my, my junior year. I wasn't training hard enough. I was out too much. I, I have a lot of regrets about my O2 season because there was five seniors on that team who were, were, were putting in the work. Uh, and we lost to Emory. Williams ended up winning it. But that was the one that kind of still 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 gets me that I've
0: let us down. Williams, Andrew Murray, not the same as Andrew Murray on two. It's a different different Andrew. Different Andrew. Correct. Okay, just just needed to clarify. He could have done a stint at Williams. Who knows? So nowadays, uh, you got to look at the player background. But you know, again, all this is to say, and you obviously were top twenty doubles player in the world, an Australian Open doubles finalist. But something people may not know about you is that you served on the ATP Tour Player Council. And you know, as it relates to Roger Federer you know, dare I say, you were the Joe Biden to his Barack Obama. uh, And there was an eventual presidential term. So I suppose that actually not the worst analogy. Shout out to on the spot improvisation. Um, But, you know, you served as as vice president to Federer on the player council. And obviously, with that comes, I'm sure, some sort of intimate relationship. You know, the book, That, written again by Simon Camper, Simon Graff, talks to players who played him, coaches who are around him, fans and tournament directors about what he meant to the sport. Obviously, you saw him in perhaps his most significant role, president of the ATP Player Council. How real was the Roger effect?
1: It's pretty real. Um, you know, one of the common questions I used to get—I get it less now—that he's he's retired—is you know everyone loves Roger and they say you know is he is is he as great or is he as kind or is he is he really as special as we all think he is? And it's it's nice to be able to answer absolutely and, and maybe even then some. He ha- he had a few qualities about him. You know, one he he makes everyone feel special, right? He's he's you know there's there's some people in this world who when they talk to you you feel like you're the only one in the room. Uh, and, I, and I I mentioned this in the, in the book that there's times where we had lunch with him and he would talk to my wife and he, and never once look at his phone, never once feel like he's got somewhere else to be. And I saw him treat me like that, my family like that. I saw him do it to sponsors. I saw him do it to other players. Um, and that's the, probably the number one quality that I try to take with me is that, look, if this guy's not too busy, like when I have a conversation with someone, I really want to try to be present. Um, I think in a way he knows how special that interaction is for the other person. Right. He's very aware of who he is, which is which is interesting too, uh, and that he can have that effect. Uh, And so he really kind of like leans into it. Um, But it's it's yeah, being, being around him is special. And I've got kind of so many different crazy interaction stories. What was lucky to be kind of in that position on the player council, work closely with him, call him a friend. But frankly, everyone calls him a friend because that's just that's how he treated the locker room. Right. Like those were his people, the player council. Those were his people. You know, he he's he was a, a special guy. And we were I was, I was lucky to play, you know, 13 years where, where he was leading the sport.
0: Yeah, I can only speak to the moments I was with him in the press room, coincidentally, in Cincinnati. And, you know, there's a short list of players, Roger, Novak, Rafa, Serena, Sharapova, who I was in the room for once, and Venus, where they walked in and they just kind of have a glow. And you're, yeah, you're just like, there's something going on here. Like, what what changed? Something in the room changed. There's now more oxygen in this location where you are. And, you know, it was fascinating. You're right. he I ask him a question. He makes eye contact with you. And you're just like, I, I think I'm in love. Like, do you want my right. bank account? Do you need my social security number? What else do you need, Roger? And, you know, one thing, it's one thing, obviously, to see him, I mean, all of us know the Rolex commercial, right, or the airplane commercial with him and Beckham from back in the day and Tiger Woods and what they're all doing, Gillette, shout out. Um, Obviously, in his role as player counsel, I am curious, and you were in the room in the discussion during his time, we saw a massive pay increase at the Grand Slams. I don't want to say how much of that is directly attributable to Roger, because I don't think that's a fair comparison. But talk to me about that fight, and you know, again, what what the role Roger did to not only to ensure that his stardom benefited the sport.
1: Yeah, I think he he realized you know, a couple of things about him beyond the council. One, I, I, I said this before that he's he's so smart. He he digests information so quickly, right? So you you need to get him. And I learned this being around him. You don't need to tell him something twice, you know. And, and that was sort of my role as, you know, a lot of big being a, being a big communicator amongst the masses, getting messages out and getting messages back, sort of to him. Um, I think he realized the you know the power he had, the moment that he had, um, kind of unifying with the, the you know the other champions of the sport as well. Um, but ultimately, the thing that he did that was probably most notable was when when you know, the money was starting to come in, you know, he was the first guy to say, you know, we need to drive this down. You know, we, we don't need this money at the top of the sport. The, the winner's checks are big enough. Um, you know, we need to get this into the first rounds. We need to get this into the qualifyings. And he was one of the first guys to really start that message. And, you know, now I work on the Grand Slam side. And, you know, we're kind of continuing that effect and really trying to build up the base and make sure that everyone's, you know, making a good living. I mean, if you track sort of the last you know, 10, 15 years, what a first round loser or what, a you know, a qualifying check used to be to what it is now. And I think he was one of the guys to really lead and drive that. And if you don't have the top players of sports saying that, because those are the ones, those are the guys really driving the business. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that, you know, Borg or McEnroe or Sampras or Agassi were necessarily, you know, leading that charge where he kind of raised it. You know, granted he was in the position where he could do that he had so many sponsorships and you know rafa and novak were alongside him and andy murray and and they were in the similar position so they could do it but i think other people could have done it as well and didn't and and he and he was one of the first guys to really say that so that's that was uh it was really special
0: i this is a question you can defer i am offering you the right to defer to the second half um How effective is the ATP Player Council? Like ultimately, as a fan, you hear about the members of it and artificially, certainly not artificially, but I suppose superficially is the word I was looking for. You see some of the initiatives they're trying to push forward. But ultimately, in a unionless sport, how Mm -hmm. effective, how much teeth does the Player Council actually have?
1: Yeah, I think it probably depends a little bit on who's on it. I mean, again, I I was so lucky, right? I I got nominated in like my
0: second year on tour and <laughs> Thek Gustavus Adolphus Education. Honestly, someone
1: someone nominated me because they said that they were one of the only players they knew with a college degree. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and so I got nominated, I somehow won the election. And it went into this group where it was, you know, myself and 10 people around a board table and three of the people were Roger, Rafa, Novak. And I haven't (laughs) had a conversation with any of them. Right. And now I'm supposedly sitting around a, you know, a boardroom table trying to make decisions. I mean, I was kind of completely overwhelmed in, in those in those early meetings. But, you know, that was also a time when, we, you know, there was really a lot of buy-in from the top players. Mm-hmm. And there was there was big issues at, at that time, right? The Grand Slam prize money was one. Uh, we were looking at shortening the calendar and trying to get more off, week, off weeks. That was a big one. Um, I have a crazy one. Well, there was a, uh, I don't know if you ever told the, the story about the Blue Clay. Tell me, born. please. Oh, man. So this was, a, you know, Blue Clay was proposed You know, it actually happened, right, one year. Yeah, it was hideous. It was I want to say say the year before that, it got proposed by Jan Tyriak. And we as the players had the opportunity basically to say, you know, yes or no to this blue clay. So Adam Helfant, the CEO, sent us all this, like, paperwork on the blue clay. And this is back when I haven't spoken to Roger, Rafa, anybody. (laughs) So I'm reading all the documents and studying. And I go into the, the boardroom. And Adam basically opens the meeting with, all right, everyone saw the documents on the blue clay. Uh, we're going to go around the room and just get kind of initial reactions on what you think. And he turns his right and he's like, Eric, you go first. <laughs> and so, so I stumble through like a comment of like, well, you know, supposedly you can see the ball better on TV. Um, you know, it's, it plays the same, you know, I, I guess we could, we could try it. So you guys, great. One, yes.
0: <laughs> and then
1: <laughs> and then Rafa goes next and Rafa opens with all clay should be red. <laughs> And then goes on in Spanish and some sort of tirade where our board member summarizes it by Rafa votes no. So like, <laughs> that is fair. Then Ra Ro- then Novak goes. And Novak goes, I was in Madrid last year. I played on this I played on a blue clay court that they had built. It's super slippery and it's actually quite dangerous. I vote no. So now it's like, now I'm voting against player health. Like I didn't even get into Madrid the year before. So like, how did I know there was a practice court there, right? I'm slumming it around, you know, 250s. And for some reason, I'm on the player console. And so then Roger goes, and Roger goes, I think blue clay is a great idea. And I literally just like, I felt like this moment of peace, like, okay, right? But then he goes, and then we should bring out the elephants and the clowns, and we'll have a circus on the court. Oh, no. And I was just like, I wanted to crawl under the table and die. And every other player is like, no, 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 no. So there's this little whiteboard, right, in Adam's in Adam's office. And it has like one yes and nine no's. And even Ashley Fisher, my buddy, the other doubles guy, was at the end. He goes, Eric, Query and I were totally voting yes. But by the time it got to us, it was
0: like seven to two or seven to one. And we couldn't do it. So anyway, that's that's good. You know what? When you are done with everything in 30, 45 years and you want to write the book on my time on the player council, I will happily ghostwrite whatever you need written because you're a busy man. Um, I'm sure there's some good ones. Last question for you, because I know you got to go. How legitimizing was it as ATP tour president to then make that final of the Australian Open? Were you Was that another like, oh, thank God. Like, that's why you elected me. That's why you're giving just a little thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I tell
1: people all the time being being on the player council, probably one of the best things for my tennis career. I think there's a there's a real thing there when you're a player and you lose and this this can be at any level. You don't want to go back to the courts. Right. You feel like you feel like you feel like the whole world knows you've lost and you shouldn't be there anymore. This happens at juniors. This happens at the pro tour. Right. And I think one of the things that, you know, being on the council, being the vice president eventually being the president is that also it it gave me like a reason to always be around. Right. And so like I could lose in the first round, I could lose in the second round still go back to the courts. Right. I could, I could have a reason to, to sit down with Stan Wawrinka at lunch. I could ask Diego Schwartzman to go out for dinner. Like, and, and people ask me all the time, they're like, Oh, you must know kind of what the players want, you know, in Cincinnati or at the open because you used to play. I said, well, I used to play, but, the reason I know what they want is because I spent like six years asking everyone questions about what they like and what they don't like. You know, players from all around the world, players from different tax brackets. Like that was sort of my job when I wasn't hitting tennis balls was to figure out, you know, what motivates the players? How do we get kind of the best, you know, life for them on tour? So, you know, I wore with the badge of honor. It was It was super fun. And in some ways, I'll probably look back at that as... As even being more meaningful than than what I did on the court, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, being able to to get to know Roger, Rafa, Novak, um, you know, some of the board members that we spend time with, Justin Gimelstob, David Egdis, you know, Giorgio Di Palermo, Andre Silva on the player side, Adam Hellfan, the CEO. These are really close friends that you know I got to learn a lot from. And frankly, the whole reason I have a I have a career in the business now is be, is because of the time I, I spent on the council. So really, really special.
0: Whipple. Klaassen Roger or Lipsky you get one pick
1: them um pick one if I have to go into battle with someone I would choose Roger um you guys had a lot of success I had a lot of success with all those players there you know in, in in many ways um I had, a, I had a lot of players who like, I think I was like the springboard, right? Like, you know, Classen, like, Suarez, Murray, there was a lot of guys who got to number one. You know, I was like a, just, you know, happy to be sort of like one rung on their ladder uh, along the way. Um, Roger had a couple of things that I needed complementing, you know, and that was sort of the the really high energy. I'm a little more low key. Uh, he had sort of uh, almost like an FU mentality about him. Like the guy came from Curacao. He left town when he was young, not dissimilar to class and kind of what he had to do to make it out of South Africa. I think those guys who, who went through those types of experiences, you get into a big match and, you know, Leander Pays gives you a shoulder bump or, or Stefanik squeaking his shoes in your service toss. It's not going to phase Roger, right? A guy like me from Minnesota, I start getting a little rattled out there. But you have a guy like Roger on your side, um it, it takes a lot of the stress away because i can just sort of focus on playing well uh and and he would take care of any of that and yeah class class and roger were, were, were next level uh, Lipsky and I didn't have quite as much success. He's he's a, one of my closest friends. Uh, and Whipple, yeah, we we go, yeah, we go, we go way back. That's kind of a whole different category.
0: Yeah, no, I like to hear. Well, little did you know, every partner you were playing with was just another vote whipped in your campaigns for vice president and president. <laughs> so ultimately, you got the job done. But with that said, any USDA things we should know about? What are you up to before we let you go?
1: You know, right now we got to just wrap up the U.S. Open and kind of prepare for next year. Uh, I think it's nice to finally be done with the U.S. Open that wasn't focused on COVID. Um, You know, so much of those last couple of years, the bubble open and then even getting 2021 done was about health and safety protocols and all of that. To do 22 and feel like, wow, that was awesome. Um, You know, how do we recreate? How do we keep making that bigger and better? Uh, and frankly just enjoying a lot of the uh, you know American tennis success. I got to go into Fort Worth like I said, uh watch a little bit of Coco and Jess, um uh, you know, just seeing what Ben Shelton did the other week, you know, watching Taylor, um I mean, Nakashima winning. Uh I mean, you're wearing the I think it's the hat from the All-American Cup. I mean, I talked to my dad on Sunday, he couldn't <laughs> stop talking about the All-American Cup. It made his weekend. So, uh congrats to your your tennis channel colleague Nick Monroe on Hey, pulling off pulling off a new event is never easy. And again, you know, a, you know, really fun tennis and really showcasing uh, all the great American stars is always something special. And you know, we're in for a good year next year. Um, I saw Riley recently. Um, hopefully, he comes back comes back soon. But you have to think that you know the the, the guys Tommy Francis Riley. Um, Taylor, everyone's trending in the right direction. You got young guys pushing them. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what Ben Shelton can do on on the big stage next year. And then on the women's side, you know, we've already got Coco and Jess uh, in the top eight. So cool time for American tennis. Um American fans can be a little tough, I think, because they want number one in the world. They're used to Serena, they're used to Agassiz and Sampras. So anything less than number one can sometimes be not enough, but Uh, We certainly got a lot of great players going the right direction.
0: Nine in the top 50. It's the first time since the 90s. Everyone calls the 90s the golden era. We're going to be calling it the roaring 20s. Um, Yeah, and you know, As tournament director of Western Southern Open this year, some scholars have argued you are responsible for Caroline Garcia's success. So I guess congratulations to you. But Eric Buderak, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Obviously wishing you safety, health uh, through the rest of the year and beyond the rest of the year, by the way, as well. But looking forward, hopefully, to having you on the pod again soon and uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat.
1: Thanks for having me. And thanks for all you guys do for tennis. I know I tell you offline occasionally, but nice to say it on air. Um, Thanks for putting out all the positive tennis content, especially in the collegiate space, which is one that I know you and I are both very passionate about. Hard to say that I'm as passionate as you are on that one. (laughs) I don't think anyone can match your passion, but uh, all you guys at Crack Rackets doing great work and are excited to be on here.
0: I'm faking it. I don't even like college tennis. Um, No, I appreciate you taking it. I appreciate that. And yes, again, open invitation. We are happy to have you again anytime soon. Thanks. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with former NCAA champion USTA director of pro tennis operations and player relations, Eric Buderak. A massive thank you to him, not only for taking the time to chat with us today, but he alluded to it at the end. He has been so supportive of what we've been doing here at Cracked Rackets from the start. And it's immensely helpful to have institutional support from someone in as high ranking of a position at the USTA as we get from Eric. He was kind enough to invite us to Cincinnati this season again. We are big fans here of Eric Buderak. We hope they do bring him back in Cincinnati and hopefully we can bring him back here on this show in the future as it really does feel like there are at least... I would say five to six more hours of stories I feel like I could generate out of Eric. We didn't even get into his playing career, and he was really good for a really long time. And to make that transition from D3 tennis to pro tennis, again, there's meat on the bone. We will have Eric Buderak back on this show. That is my promise to all of you listeners. I will say this to entice him to come back in the future. Please, please, please send him a tweet and let him know you enjoyed this conversation because I know that is something he would appreciate. Again, a thank you to Eric for taking the time to join us on the show. Of course, we've got plenty of other fantastic conversations right now happening here at Crack Rackets. Of course, we're recapping all the action happening on tour each and every day over on our mini break podcast feed. Conversations with people like J.Y. Oban, Tanner Stump, Ellen Perez, Brandon Nakashima, and so many more over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. All of those shows available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Of course, you can find them on social media as well, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, by following us at Cracked Rackets or following me directly at AL Grusk. And of course, you also have to give a shout out to the super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. With that said, for the fantastic Eric Buderak, our super producer, Daniel West stuff and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot. And we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.